may, I'm fearful I may not have a voice after the song service. So good. So rich this morning. Let me say before we begin this morning how thankful I am for you again, how much I love you and what you mean to me and my family and how grateful I am to be with you this morning in, in worship and being able to preach the word of God and, and all of that. It, it is such a joy, tears of joy have streamed my face this morning all because we are together worshiping our Lord. And, and it is so good to see some of you who I, I know have taken a break. And, and so you're, you felt comfortable and you've come back. And it is so good to see you. You mean the world to us. And, and so we are just, as Randy said, this is the real thing. And so it's really good. And so I, I want you to really hold on to that because we're now going to talk about church discipline. Don't forget that I love you. We, we, we have endeavored for three Sundays, at three Sundays, that I was going to walk through this text. And, and I was just so thankful. I said, Lord, we're on the last Sunday. And he said, no, nah, we're going to hold on to this for a couple more. And so it's just been kind of hanging with me as we, have, as we have approached this Sunday, as we come to the final sermon on church discipline, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you are new to First Baptist Church of Jonesboro or you have been absent, we have been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians in hopes of being a better church ourselves, being a, a healthy church. That is the ultimate goal. I have, I really, I have smaller goals, but, but, but all those goals will go out the window for, for th- that we would achieve this one goal, that, that when all is said and done and you and I stand before God, that we stand before healthy, that we were a healthy church or we were pursuing health as a church. That, that is the ultimate goal. And so 1 Corinthians is a wonderful letter in that, in that this, this, church, this church, Corinth, was an unhealthy church with many problems, and Paul is writing to them, trying to correct them. And so we've entitled this series, Dear Church. It's a, it's a letter that Paul writes to correct and to teach proper church practices in many different areas, in many areas that you will enjoy and that you will love and like, but also in many areas that you will not enjoy and like. And chapter 5 is kind of one of those that we tend to run through and not really endeavor to, to understand what this process is and what this practice is, because Paul is not really, I mean, he's really upset with the guy who's having this relationship this affair with his stepmother yeah that's pretty bad but he's really mad at the church for not dealing with it and so chapter five is, is really on on the practice of church discipline and so we committed three Sundays to the study of this chapter with the hope of us having a healthy understanding because we understand that church discipline can be misused and not used at all it, it can be a malpractice or it can be completely ignored and so I want to strongly encourage you that if you are new to First Baptist or if you have missed um, the last two sermons, that you go back to our website and listen to this as you see what church discipline is, why we practice church discipline, the reasons for it, and then today it'll all kind of come together in a puzzle piece. Just you know, see the whole puzzle uh, as we look at how to practice church discipline. How does one practice church 
discipline. And so we're going to finish that up today. And you're going to see three things this morning. Um, You're going to see we're going to practice church discipline according to the authority of Christ, by the method of Christ, and the love of Christ. So so let's look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're really going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. Those are the two places, okay? So let's read 1 Corinthians 5 so we can get the context again. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. Now someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, have not mourned instead, to, uh, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with unleavened, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in the letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of the world, or with the covetous, or the swindlers, or with the idolaters, and with, and for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with the so-called brother, if he is an immoral person. Or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. As I said, we dealt with what is church discipline, and we dealt with why we practice church discipline. But this morning, we want to look at how practice church discipline. In order to do that, you're going to have to go to Matthew 18. And we'll read that in just a moment. But in this life, you and I share different methods to accomplish certain tasks. There's, there's different things. Trey, Trey and I are different. And so he, he, he works differently than I work and I work differently than he works. And, and, and some of you work differently than we were. So, so, so when it comes to accomplishing a task, we're going to be different in that. Some of us may wash cars differently. Some of you may cook food differently. The, you know, in this world, by God's common grace, he's allowed us to tackle certain things from different, uh, you know, vantage points. We even see in the Gospels the difference in the writing styles of the Gospels and other books of the Bible. They, they all are coming to the same truth. Jesus is Lord. He died for us. Uh, our sins can be forgiven in Christ, but you, you even see their personalities and different things. There, there, there's all kinds of things there. But in this life, you know, there are some things that have only one method. Now, some of you, when it comes to discipline, there, some of you, we talk about just regular discipline, there have been different methods for you. Now, you may have been raised in church or you occasionally attended church with your parents when you were little. And so you share the painful experience of discipline through, uh, during worship in maybe a various ways. And it may have been a thump on the head. Amen? Your father reached over and he thumped you on the head or your mother. Anybody ever get the thump as a kid? Some of you got the thump. Lupe's like, I got it. He may be thinking, Katie also does No, I'm just messing sorry, Lupe. Just giving you a hard time, Lupe. It, 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 you get the thump on the head. How many of you got the tug on the ear? Randy said that was, that was me. How many of you got the squeezing of the leg or the hand? 
All right, some of you got the squeeze, right? Now, how many of you may have fared better than others that you just received the look? The look of prophecy. The prophecy was that if you didn't act right, I'm about to beat you. And some of you, that prophecy came true, amen? That, that, prophecy, that prophecy was fulfilled. And, and here's the deal. Some of you wonderful, wonderful people, there, there were some very special people in here who did not heed the admonishments of their parents or the experience, the joy, or, or didn't heed the admonishment of the parents, and they experienced the joy of being led out of church while everybody watched. And you prayed silently, or some of you prayed loudly, or said loudly, pray for me. Got led out of church? All of these are various forms of discipline with the purpose of setting us straight. But when it comes to church discipline, when it comes to the practice of church discipline, love, the church has erred in the fact that it has tried to do it many different ways when God has given us but one way. It's, it's, it's sadly for you and me, and this is true for me, it takes more than a thump on the head or a look to set me straight. I'm a sinner. I, 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 I am not beyond belief, but I, I am not so naive not to believe that this time next year, if not by God's grace and by the accountability of God's people, I could be somewhere else doing God knows what. It would be arrogant to think that, to think otherwise, that you and I are so above everything else that, that we ourselves can't sin And so God knows this about us as sinners that we can stray. And so he has given us a practice by which we are to work with one another. We're not left to guess. And so here we see, first, that we practice church discipline by the authority of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice verse 4. Notice verse 4. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, to ignore this verse leads to misunderstanding and malpractice of church discipline. We said a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that in the why sermon, why do we practice church discipline, that here in verse 4, that Paul is saying that we practice church discipline because church discipline is the will of God. He's saying this is what Jesus will do. And we went to Matthew 18 and we saw that. We're going to get to Matthew 18 again in a moment. We see that this is what Jesus does. But, but there's also something else here going on. Paul is not only saying that this is the will of God. Paul is saying this is the authority of God. This is the authority of Jesus. So, so, so there's this question that, you know, that, that tends to come up when you talk about church discipline and this issue of judgment, this issue of disfellowship and things. Who has the right to do that? Who are you to judge whether I'm being sinful or not and disassociate the church and think, you know, who has that right? Well, Paul answers the question and he says, we do. We, the assembled church. The church, notice what he says, when you are assembled. You can't, you can't miss the wording here, when you are assembled. In other words, Jesus Christ has given the assembled church, the church that gathers together, the authority or the right to carry out church discipline. So, so not only is it the will of Christ that we carry out church discipline, but, but it is also the authority and the right to carry out church discipline. And so this is a very important lesson this morning that you must adhere to, that church discipline is not the actions of vigilantes. It's not. 
That's malpractice. That's wrong. Church discipline, again, it's not Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars who doesn't like the individual and pushes the button and, and they drop to their death and their doom. That's not what this is. This is the right of the local church, not one person. One person cannot decide whether to excommunicate someone, to disfellowship with somebody. By the way, it also works the opposite way. One person cannot decide, I don't like this church anymore, I'm going to go somewhere else. Mm-mm, no. You're going to see in just a moment that when you came to the church... You covenanted with the church. And so not one person can decide that person over there gets on my nerves, they need to leave. Or that person over there, those people over there get on my nerves, so I'm going to leave. It's not how this works, beloved. The, the pastor cannot say to someone, I don't like you, and remove the individual. You cannot just uh, purge the membership because they don't come anymore. There's a process, there's, there's a whole lot of things that go into this. And so only the assembled church, only when you and I come together physically, meaning we are assembled, have the authority. So where does Paul, the apostle, get this idea from? <coughs> Turn with me first to Matthew 16. And so, and so just go with me, Matthew chapter 16. You need to see this and we're going to work our way through this. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. Peter has just confessed Christ as Lord. This is where Jesus is asking the question, the famous question, who do you say that I am? Peter says in verse 15, uh, or verse 16, Jesus asked the question in verse 15, who do, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter's confession that Christ is Lord. The church is built on that confession. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But look at verse 19. This is important. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here's the thing. Jesus is saying that the church that is built on the confession of Peter is going to receive these keys of heaven. These keys of heaven is the rule of God, not the place. The kingdom of God, it, right now, it's not just the place because it hasn't been fulfilled. It's the rule. So here at FPC Jonesboro, God rules because we are the people of God. His law rules, right? So, so this is what he's saying here, that you've been given the keys to this rule, this kingdom, and it's given to who? The church. FBC, you have been given keys to the kingdom of heaven. And those keys will bind on earth what is bound in heaven. And those keys will loose on earth what is loosed in heaven. In other words, to bind and to loose means to forbid or to permit. Just in the same way that you have to have a set of keys to get into your house. There is a set of keys to get into heaven. And the church has the keys and we are able we are the ones who vocalize and to declare again we don't we're not the ones who make the decision but we are the ones who declare the will of God yes 
that is permitted in heaven, so it's permitted on earth. Yes, that, is, that person is permitted in heaven, so they're permitted within the church. No, they're not. No, heaven's not going to accept that. So we don't accept that. The local church speaks for Jesus when it assembles. This is important. Government does not speak for Christ. Amen? Amen. They do not speak what is right and what is wrong, who is right and who is wrong. But here's the thing. Neither do you own by yourself. But the assembled church. That we, the church come, we get to declare what is right, what is wrong. So, so here's the deal. We get to declare what God forbids and what God permits. Or who God forbids and God permits. So sexual sin, homosexuality, transgenderism, all that stuff, that whole line of things. God forbids in heaven. And the church says on earth, we will not allow it either. I don't care how woke you want to be, beloved. We declare that it is wrong and that is not permitted in the church. Because to permit it in the church would to say it's permitted in heaven. And we know that God says it's not. Not only that, we can also say confidently, who? Not, not always perfectly and not always with some, you know, maybe a little bit, some, some, some grayer. But, but we can say confidently the type of person that is permitted in heaven and who's not. And so a person comes down the aisle and they say, Brother Brian, I have repented of my sins and believed upon Jesus Christ. And so we, the church, look at their life and we look at their fruit and we say, yes, you, yes, come into the fellowship. We permit you into the fellowship because a person who, like Peter, confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, repents of their sin, is permitted into the church because it's permitted into heaven. But when an atheist comes down and says, I don't believe in God, I just want to be part of this community. No. Because it's not permitted in heaven. And God has given the keys to be able to declare that to us. So when someone comes and says, I'm in that line, the LGBTQ or whatever, I'm in that line. And God loves me. Y'all let me be part of this church or... Or, or I'm already a member of the church. You can't, dis, you, can't dis, you can't disfellowship with me. You can't church discipline me. No, we have that right. We have that right. What right do you have to say whether that person, whether you can vouch for that person? By the right of Christ who died on the cross and rose from the grave and said, Here, church, here are the keys to my kingdom. You don't get to decide who comes in. But you can at least declare confidently that which is in heaven here in earth. That which is permitted in heaven can be permitted in the church and should be permitted here. That which is not should not be. And so now turn to Matthew chapter 18. Because now in chapter 18, he actually deals with the, the, the issue of discipline. So, so notice what he says here. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Matthew 18 verse 15. 
If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or more three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth you shall, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth about anything that they may ask it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where two or three have gathered together in my name I am there in their midst did you notice the language binding and loosing so again we see the same language and please note here beloved just look at me for just a second okay when someone says hey where two or three are gathered Jesus is there amen hallelujah But that ain't talking about prayer. And that ain't talking about worship. Because that's silly. If I have to be gathered with people in order for God to hear me, that means God doesn't hear my worship and my prayers when I'm locked up by by myself because of a pandemic or an ice storm. That's not what this is. So anytime someone tells you where two or three are gathered, brother, no, 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 that's church discipline. It is in the context of church discipline, not worship and prayer. What he's saying here is, is that when two or three of the church are assembled and they look at a brother who is is committing adultery and that brother is not repentant of his sins, that whatever the church is saying here, saying, brother, we can no longer vouch for you, we're also saying heaven cannot vouch for you because you will not repent of your sins. Beloved, the context of this, what Jesus is saying here is, is that he has given the authority of heaven, the declaration of that which is right and wrong, that which is sinful and that which is not sinful to the church. We don't make the decision. We have God's word that has already told us all that, but we're the ones declaring it. So when the church gathers to remove somebody from membership because of their sinfulness because they will not repent and the question is asked what right do you have what authority do you people have we get to say the authority of jesus christ who died on the cross and rose from the grave who is the king of kings and lord of lords for he has given this local body the king the keys of the kingdom so what does this mean when we talk about church discipline it means beloved that 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 you must take your membership seriously Membership is to be taken seriously because you, when you come, and when, when you come and the church votes on you, beloved, just take, the, just take the one voting. You have an authority. You have a right that when a person comes, we're not even talking about church discipline. We're talking about people coming into the church. You have a responsibility to say, yes, that person is exactly what God permits in the kingdom. So can you imagine when you get to heaven, beloved, and you just permitted everyone, the very ones God said are not permitted, how he's going to judge you? We have a responsibility as members of the church to take seriously that which we bind and that which we loose. 
So if you are a member of FBC this morning, hear me, that if you have not, that if you have been apathetic in your membership and you have not taken these things seriously, blah, repent of your apathy within the church and step up to the seriousness, step up to the responsibility that God has given you. Membership coming into the church and church discipline are serious matters of the Lord. And that responsibility, those keys have been given to this local body, given to you. Take seriously your membership. But not only that, beloved, you must know that adding new members must be taken seriously. We must take seriously the role of bringing in new members. Are we, are we binding or are we loosing? Are we permitting that which God permits? Or are we looking at God saying, God, you don't permit these people, but we know better than you, God. We are smarter than you. We're more loving than you. So we will permit them into heaven. Do you know how evil that is? Because you deceive them thinking they think they're good, but then they stand before God. But that church said I was okay. Do you see? Beloved, do you see the adding of members in the church discipline is serious matters? And then also, I must tell you this, you must not feel guilty. I did not say you must not feel the hardship and the difficulty of church discipline. It is not easy. And you're going to see that in just a moment. It's not easy. It is hard. It is, it is a funeral, beloved. When we, when we have to release somebody from the church because of, their own, because of their sinfulness, beloved, hear me this morning. It is painful. It is a funeral. I heard the other day, talking. Talk, Jessica was telling me the other day, of, of, of a church that had to release a man who was cheating on his wife. And the wife and the kids were there and they were in tears gripping the Bible because they, this was their only hope that, 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 if, that maybe this, church, this practice of discipline will bring him back to us. This is hard stuff. So yes, we feel the hardship and the difficulty of it. But hear me this morning, beloved, don't you ever feel the guilt of it. The culture out there tells you that you have no right and you have no authority as a local church to, de- to, to declare what is right and wrong, what is permitted and what is not. They don't, get the, they don't have the authority to give to you. That authority came from God who sent his son to die. And we, the local church, have been given that. And it is a blessing beyond belief beloved it is heavy it is a heavy one but it is a blessing and it is a and it is something that we are to not feel guilty of but that we are to carry out with seriousness and to the best of our ability with wisdom but not only that beloved secondly we must practice church discipline by the method of jesus and unfortunately chapter 5 of first corinthians really kind of gets to the end chapter 5 of first corinthians is lacking a lot of information of what kind of led up to this point where now they're turning this individual over to satan and remember what that means is is that they're just allowing the consequences of his life to to basically for him to feel those consequences and get him to that low point in life to where he will repent and be restored and, and so here we see in matthew 18 though that we get the full process the full method let me say this what takes place in first corinthians chapter 5 is at the very end of the process so there's a lot of steps there's four steps i'm going to show you so 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 matthew i mean first corinthians 5 is step number four there's three steps that i want you to see that are leading up to that so so again look with me here matthew chapter 18 verse 15 and 20 Step number one, what is the method that Jesus gives? Now, again, this is red letters, by the way. 
So, so, so again, not only, as I told you earlier, this is the will of God. This is what Jesus wants us to do. So Jesus tells us how to do it. So look at verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, we have individual confrontation here. This means one person privately goes to the other person to discuss what's going on. So, so the other person may not even know that you know. You know, it, it, it may, or, or it may be more people know, but you're the one who says, I need to go. It could be a cheating spouse, and the other spouse calls and says, Brother Brian, can you go talk to my spouse? Because this is what's going on. What, if the case, it is one individual having a private conversation with another. And notice what he says. Jesus says, showing him his fault, meaning bringing to light or exposing his sin. So the purpose of the meeting is to convince them and to show them that they are being sinful. It's not to kick them. It's not to beat up on them. It is lovingly going up and saying, man, I've been noticing this in you. And, and I just want to warn you that, that this is sinful and not good. Can we pray about this? Okay, good. All right. Yeah. That, that, that's what it is. It's one individual. So, so you're trying to get them to acknowledge their sin. The first step is very discreet. It's very gentle. It's very humble, merciful, depending on the sin. If it's a harsh sin, you may need to, you know, you may need to not be so gentle. You may need to be a little, little more confrontational with them. But notice there's no outing of the person's sin. You're not standing before the church and saying, so-and-so did this. There's none of that. There's no public shame. There's no hitting the button, you know, floor opens up and they go to their doom. No, instead, the first step of church discipline involves the fewest amount of people with the hope of repentance. Let me say this. If church discipline is done properly, nobody in the church knows about it. No one knows about it. I'm sinning, I'm sinning, I'm not, I'm treating my children in a very harsh, mean way. And Mr. Garland, in his gentleness and sweetness, comes to me and he says, Brother Brian, I've noticed how in your anger you've treated your children wrongly. Brother, that's, that's not the way of Christ. And there, hopefully overcome with conviction I repent and we pray together and we hug and cry together and then no one knows because we're not out to shame people we're out for the good of the other individual and so therefore beloved here here what you have is you just have a confrontation and if it's done properly and everything goes well in those first couple steps no one knows about it but secondly, and then you get to the small group confrontation. Look at verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, for that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So if the person refuses to repent, if they refuse to listen to the one who's confronted them, they, they, don't, they don't repent, whether it's in that moment or whether it's a month from now or a year from now, they're still sinning. Now the one becomes two or three and so this small group of individuals is to approach the individual, the sinning individual, show him his sin, the same purpose to expose the sin, have him acknowledge his, his sin or her sin. And the purpose of taking these other believers is that you have two or three witnesses. And so basically, as you're increasing in steps, the, the amount of people who know begin to increase. Now, let me point out a few things. Number one, this is, this is helpful for the one sinning on several different ways. Because one, sometimes, well, you know, you know, that was just Randy that told me that I was being sinful, you know. But all of a sudden, if it's Randy and Mr. Garland and Trey and, and, and others, right? That's just my wife telling me that I'm sinful, right? But all of a sudden, you got more people, but maybe there's something to this. 
But, but also notice that as it goes on, the person themselves, this protects them. This protects them because what if that one individual was mean and, and harsh? Or what if that, what the, maybe, maybe what they're pointing out is wrong. All of a sudden, the two or three can look at the other guy, the one who's confronting and go, whoa, whoa, brother, you're, you're doing this in anger. This is not how Christ would do this. No, no, you need to, you need to step back. So it works both ways in increasing the amount of witnesses, beloved. Not only confirms the sin, but it can also confirm that the church discipline, that the accountability is being done correctly. And then I also want you to notice there's no timeline. This isn't like, okay, so I confronted them on Monday. All right, the small group goes on Tuesday. All right, on Wednesday, we're bringing it before the church. No, 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 no. This can take days, weeks, or even years, months, years. To, to, as we're watching and as we're working with one another. So there's no timeline here. You, you have to understand, beloved, we have to give the Spirit time to work and convict this individual. Grace and patience is always part of church discipline. And so once again, the group is not outing his sin. No one knows but the small group. They're dealing with it privately. They're dealing with it lovingly. They're, they're dealing with it and no one knows. We're not telling the world. We're not putting it on Facebook. Now notice the third step, church confrontation. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. So there's two steps here. The third step is church confrontation. If the sinning brother refuses to listen, so now months have went by, a year has went by, and, and this small group of witnesses, small people ha- group have been pouring in prayer over this individual, calling this individual to, to repentance, lovingly rebuking this individual, and, and the person just is not repenting. He's not stopping his adultery. He's not, he's not stopping his, his, whatever, his anger. It could be anything. Racism, I mean, anything, I mean, all of these things, any sin, right? He's not stopping in this. So, so, so what do you do now? Well, the Bible says, red letters, Jesus Christ, you must now take it before the church. Now, again, there are some things here that if the sin is public, if it's a public sin, then, then you may have already get, you may get to this point a lot quicker. But, but if it's a private sin that's been still not repentant, at some point you're going to get to this point where you bring it to the church, where the church gathers an assembled meeting, and the pastor stands up, or one of the elders stands up, or this small group of people stand up, and they say, Brother so-and-so here, this is what's been going on for the past year. And so the church then begins to call him to repentance. We want you to repent. We love you. We care for your soul. Repent. It, it, it could even be, beloved, church attendance, that you haven't been to church in over a year. And we're calling you to church. You're a member of the church. You've covenanted with the church. You need to come to church. The church has now, all of us together are are now, our voices raised together, praying together. It's in this stage where the church, there's church-wide prayer for the person. There's church-wide exhortation for the person. We're all pleading. But also there's church-wide expectation. We're, We're expecting you to come back. We're expecting you to repent. But now the church knows and the church joins in the process. And then finally, in verse 17, you have the church removal. Notice what he says. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Gentiles and the tax collectors, as we discussed a few weeks ago, were those who were outside the church community. They were not in the covenant relationship with God and with one another. 
The tax collectors were the Jews who betrayed their brethren for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not, were not part of the covenant community yet. So, so, so here there, there's a disassociation. There's an excommunication. Now, as I stated before, it is not the physical removing of someone from the church. Where do you want the Gentile and the tax collector to be on Sunday morning in the church? I want them in the church because in the church, they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to see that I still love them and I still care for them. But what this is, is a change in relationship. We can no longer act as though you are part of the body of Christ. And so with that, you lose certain privileges, such as the taking of the Lord's Supper, the church membership on the role. The Christian fellowship is going to change. I can no longer just invite you to my house and act as though we're okay. No, I'll invite you to my house, but it's going to be to evangelize you. And so we're, there's this change here. But we want you here on Sunday mornings to hear the gospel. Only in extreme cases where the individual poses a harm to the church do, do we may see a physical excommunication or some other things, some very devious sins. But nine times out of ten, we want that individual in the church, but they're not part of the church anymore. When does the church enact this final step? When after much prayer, much exhorting, the church is assured the person will not repent. I believe this is where the church considers the advice of its church pastors, its church elders and leadership. That when they believe that all things have been exhausted, the church leadership will stand up and then recommend to the church that we then move on. And there you will have a meeting where you will gather and you will vote to remove the individual from the role. And it will not be a a time of joy. It will be one of the saddest and most heartbreaking moments of your life. As though your arm has been cut off. Because you have just recognized that the person you thought was your brother is not your brother. And then from that point on, we're going to say, he may not be my brother. He may not be my sister. But I am now going to evangelize him to make him my brother and my sister. I'm going to work to let him know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know this is hard and I know this is tough, but beloved, hear me. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that in verse 5. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Sometimes, beloved, the only way to get through to them is to go through the full process so that they may recognize their sin and come to repentance and come to know Jesus Christ. And this is the method that God has given us. And you need to know three things this morning. It is a simple method. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to find a better way. There is no better way. This is the way that God has given us. That Jesus has directed us to do this. And he's given us these steps. And our greatest prayers, beloved, our greatest steps in prayer should be twofold. That in this method, in this process, we are being faithful and we are being wise. But it is also hard, it is simple, but it is not easy. It is extremely difficult because dealing with sin is never easy. Dealing with my sin is never easy. If I am the one that you are having to discipline, beloved, you need to know that I have a problem and it is hard. 
I hate my sin, but I also love my sin. And my sin creeps up in moments. And it talks to me like the serpent talked to, talked to Eve and said, Brian, it's okay. It's okay to eat the fruit. It's okay to lust. It's okay to lie. It's okay to steal, Brian. It's okay. God's okay with it. And He's not okay with it. And I need you, beloved, as hard as it's going to be, to let me know, to help me, and fight with me to overcome my sin. So it's simple, but it is hard because we feel the weight of sin. You are feeling the weight. What you're feeling is not guilt, beloved, but what you're feeling is the hardship, not of your sin, but of my sin. Because that's the way it's meant to be. We're a body. And when one sins, I feel the weight of their sin. It hurts. But also you must know that in this process, there is humility and grace in this process. Well, uh, there's no meanness and there's no, there's no shame and there's no, there's no trying to guilt trip people. There's patience and love. There's humility in this. We recognize as the ones who are confronting the other, we recognize that we could be on the receiving end of this ourselves if not for the grace of Christ and if not for the love of the church body. We're not being arrogant. We're not being prideful. Instead, we're humbly calling the brethren back. And that's what I want to show you this third thing. He said, this is also a, a practice in the love of Jesus Christ. You need to know it is, a, it is a practice in the love of Jesus Christ. Because notice that neither Paul's writing or Jesus' writings. Is there any malice or is there any desire to harm the individual? Jesus affirms you have won a brother. Paul affirms you, you might, his soul might be saved. But I want you to look at this, 2 Corinthians. And I know we're, we're, we're running slow on time. But here, just here, let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, beloved. We're not really sure if this is the individual from chapter 5, but many people think it is. So chapter 5, the guy is called to repent, repentance. He's, he's set free from the church. He's, he's, just, he's, he's turned over to Satan. Well, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, he says, he says um, in whose case the gospel has blinded the minds. I may be on the wrong chapter. I'm sorry, I'm at chapter 4, chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. But if any has, but if any has called sorrow, he has called sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted, notice this, by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So you're not just obedience in church discipline. You're also obedience in forgiving the individual when they repent and loving them. So he says in verse 10, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of these schemes. And so in other words, notice what Paul says, the punishment afflicted by the majority, that's church discipline. And, and many believe it's the same guy in chapter 5. We're not for sure, but we, many believe that. And Paul says, he has come to repentance. And now you must forgive him. 
And now you must reaffirm your love for him. So, so what is biblical church love, beloved? In church discipline, you don't, you don't remove grace and you don't remove mercy and you don't remove love. It's all saturating the church discipline here. And so according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beloved, we are to love the individual biblically. So, so we carry out church discipline in patience. When we carry it out with patience and grace, waiting for him to come to repentance so that I can forgive him. So that, as I said, if Mr. Garland comes to me and says, Brian, you're being sinful, that I repent of my sins. And he wraps me in his arms and he says, oh, let's let's rejoice. You have been forgiven of your sins. This is a time to rejoice. So, So we're being patient with one another. Kindness and not animosity is being shown here. We're being kind to the one. We're, we're showering them with our love and our compassion. It, sometimes it may get a little tough love, but we're still, we're not, we're not resentful. We're not bitter. We, we don't hate the individual. Well, those seeking church discipline must also be humble and not arrogant because we know that on any given day, beloved, it could be us on the other side of the table because we know our sins. You may not know my sin. And I may not know your sin, but you know your sin, and I know mine. And I know that if I am not careful, it will take me to the depths of hell, and I will roll in it like the prodigal son rolled in the mud. And so we know this about ourselves. And so we're not arrogant, or, and so we're, we're, we're not prideful, but we're humble in this process. And we must also not act unbecoming or anti-Christian. I'm not acting in a way that Christ would not act. Even in my confrontations, even in my dealings with sin and church discipline, blood, I must be Christ-like in this. We seek the glory of God because we know ultimately the glory of God is the ultimate love that an individual can have. And we never, ever, beloved, ever do we rejoice in sin. I never rejoice in sin. I never rejoice in cheap grace. I rejoice in the saving power of the gospel. That when presented to a sinful man, presented to a sinful woman, I know they can be saved. I know they can be saved. You can be saved this morning. Did you know that? No matter how sinful you are, no matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done, beloved, you can be saved today by the gospel of Christ that calls you to repentance and tells you to fall on your face, to forsake your sin and come to Him. That is the most loving thing that we can do. Let's proclaim the gospel. That his sacrifice is great enough for the one who is not worthy to be a member yet. The one who has not... His sacrifice is good enough to make the worst of sinners become members. And his sacrifice is great enough that if a man or woman has been disfellowshipped and excommunicated from the church, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, beloved, the love God has for sinners is enough to bring them back into the fold and make them my brother again. Amen? That, beloved, is the love it is in found in church discipline. It is the gospel. And so we say this morning that church discipline is loving because as the writer of Hebrew says, he says, but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you hear that? You're not a son. Biblical church discipline, beloved, is loving someone even if it means tough love, but you love them in such a way to let them know, to remind them they are children of God. And just as a parent disciplines their child because they love them, God disciplines the sinful member 
And he uses the church to do it because he loves them. And who are we? Who are we to hold back the love of God to a son or a daughter of God? I never want to call any of you illegitimate children of the Lord. And so therefore, beloved, we must practice church discipline because it is the love of Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, he says that the discipline, though it may be hard, he says it is not the mailed hand of the enemy that is beating us. It is, it is not the hand of the enemy that is on us, but it is the hand and the stroke of a father who loves us. And so in church discipline, beloved, we see the love of God who is always working for you, working to bring you into his arms even when you're running away from him. A son, a daughter, running away and he wants to bring you in and he uses the church for such love. We practice it by the authority of Christ. We practice it by the method of Christ. But beloved, hear me this morning. We practice it by the love of Christ. That we as children may feel the hand of a father. Let's pray.